Our passage this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are uh, finishing our series on the book of Genesis this morning, and um, in doing so, we're looking at the very last episode um, in the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph's story is probably one of the most relevant for us as late modern Western people because of all the objections out there to faith in Jesus or Christianity, or even just belief in God in general, by far one of the oldest and most challenging objections is this whole question of evil and suffering. We look at a world filled with horrors, a world full of things like war and murder, or poverty and famine, or genocide, or rape, or racism, uh, a thousand other little injustices and cruelties. We look at a world that's filled with these things. We look at things like this happening in our own lives, And we instinctively ask what I call the why question. The why question is, why God? Why would you let things like this happen in the world? Why, God, would you let things like this happen in my own life? The why question is probably the hardest question of all. And the amazing thing about this story of Joseph in the Bible is that it does not shy away from the why question. But the amazing thing also is that in this passage we just read, that why question is also tied to another really difficult situation. Because when you look at what's going on in these brothers' lives, you can see that they're not reconciled. At least not fully, not yet. You go back to the beginning of Joseph's story and Joseph's brothers wanted to kill him, but they ended up selling him into slavery instead. It was an act of unspeakable evil against their brother Joseph. And so last week we looked at how God worked in their lives to reunite these brothers. But this week we see that we still have a problem. Jacob, their father, has just died. And now the brothers send a message to Joseph that basically says, Hey, Joseph, um, before he died, Dad told us that you should forgive us and be nice to us. (laughs) Now, not only is that incredibly manipulative... It also shows that this family, these brothers, are not yet reconciled. They don't trust Joseph. They're afraid of Joseph. These brothers are not yet reconciled. So what has to happen for reconciliation to take place? 
Last week, we were looking at what had to happen in the hearts of the brothers to, for them to come to a place of sorrow and repentance for what they had done to their brother. This week, we're looking at what had to happen in Joseph's heart to get him to a place of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation with his brothers. What has to happen to get you to a place where you're not just able, but actually willing to look at people in your life who may have hurt you deeply, people who may have committed unspeakable evil against you, and be not just able, but willing to be reconciled to them. How in the world does that happen? How can you want that? (laughs) How can you do it? This passage shows us. And it shows us because there are three things that Joseph does here. We see him in his answer to his brothers. I mentioned Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner last week. He wrote a wonderful little commentary on Genesis. Derek Kidner talks about these three things that Joseph says here. I can't improve on what he says. And some of the best sermons on this passage mention the same thing. So we're going to look at those. There are three things that Joseph does here that enable him and you and me to live a life of peace and reconciliation with people who've hurt us. And those three things are you get out of God's place, you get hold of God's view, and you give away God's love. You get out of God's place, you get hold of God's view, and you give away God's love. Okay? The first is you get, hold, um, you get out of God's place. In verse 19, the very first thing Joseph says is, Do not fear, from, am I in the place of God? Now, what does Joseph mean by the place of God? Let's take a, a closer look. The brothers send a message to Joseph that basically says, Hey, Joseph, Dad said that you should forgive us. And then they come themselves personally, and they bow down before him and offer to be his servants. So they're terrified of something. And Joseph recognizes this fear because the first thing he says to them is, do not fear. So what are they so afraid of? In a word, judgment. Probably execution because you notice their counteroffer is to come and offer themselves as slaves to Joseph. They're afraid that Joseph is going to bring the hammer of judgment down on them. But what does Joseph say? He says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Very simply, Joseph is saying, judgment belongs to God alone. That's what he's saying. Judgment belongs to God alone. Now, as soon as we say that, we have to also say, first of all, that this does not mean that we're excusing evil or refusing to name evil for what it is. I mean, in the very next verse, Joseph says, what you did was evil. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first of all, this does not mean refusing to name evil or, or, or excusing evil. But secondly, it also does not mean that we um, don't bring consequences or discipline or accountability into people's lives when they do do evil. We spent a whole sermon last week looking at that. What this does mean is when Joseph says judgment belongs to God alone, it's not to say that there is no need for judgment. There is. It's to say Joseph doesn't have the right to dispense it, and neither do you or I. That is a very different thing. Let me put this as simply as I possibly can. There is exactly one person, one being in the whole universe, who knows exactly what everyone else in the universe deserves. And guess what? It's not you. We don't have the necessary knowledge in the first place to render judgment on others. You don't know what someone else deserves because you don't have the necessary knowledge. They're all, you don't know what kind of home or upbringing somebody had. You don't know what kind of challenges or obstacles they may have faced. You don't know what kind of evil or suffering they may have endured in their own lives. You don't know what kind of 
emotional or psychological or maybe even biochemical factors are at work in their lives, all of those things have a tremendous impact on the reasons that people do the things they do. That means that the less you know someone, the easier it is to judge them. But the more you know, the harder it is. So for instance, I read an article a few years ago um, written by a field producer for a political TV news show. And he talks about how part of his job was to go out and interview people um, who were going to be on the show. That meant that he spent a lot of time with people whose political and social and cultural viewpoints were very, very different from his own. And so at the beginning of the article, he talks about that. And here's what he says. He says, I like to loathe people. It just feels so good. When I see them on TV or read their blogs, I sigh contentedly and I say, ah, it is now morally permissible for me to loathe this person. <laughs> so imagine how irksome it was to have to deal with persons like that on a constant basis and to discover that those persons in person generally weren't loathsome persons after all. In fact, to my great consternation and disappointment, I often liked them. He goes on to talk about a number of people whose um, um, viewpoints, whose political positions, whose ideologies, a number of people that he would have by nature been inclined to hate. He's talking about them. And he says that the more he got to know these people, the more he actually liked them. And the harder it was to hate them because he was getting to know them better. So at the end of the article, he actually says this. He says, I lived in a little bubble surrounded by people who think more or less like me. And when I considered people with opposing viewpoints, I would concoct an entire narrative of who they were and what they were like, and what they were like was yucko. Because I was not really interacting with them. I just thought I was because, hey, look, there they are on TV, or there's that guy's post in the comment section. But that stuff doesn't count. Meeting people counts. Talking counts. Now listen, I understand there's a big difference between merely having opposing viewpoints on something and real moral evil. But the point still stands. Unless you really know someone to their depths, unless you know everything they've experienced, everything they've gone through, everything that's happened to them, you can make a moral evaluation of their actions, but you cannot know what that person deserves. You can't know because you don't have the necessary knowledge. Only God does. But even more than that, we don't have the necessary moral perfection to render judgment on people. How do you know that if you had experienced everything that person experienced, or if you'd gone through everything they've gone through, if you had had the same circumstances in your life that that person had experienced, how do you know that you wouldn't do what they had done? It's really easy to look at certain actions and, and to say contentedly and, and somewhat smugly to ourselves, I would never do that. But how do we know? How do we know that if circumstances in our lives had not been different, that we wouldn't have done the same thing or that we may not have even done something worse? We don't know because we haven't been in the same circumstances. Friends, judgment belongs to God alone. We don't have the necessary knowledge. We certainly don't have the necessary moral perfection to render judgment. And let me say one last thing. Uh, you know, holding a grudge against people feels really good. Um, that's why we do it, because it feels so good. But it will hurt you in the long run. If you hold a grudge, if you hold bitterness and resentment and envy and hatred and jealousy in your heart against people, it feels really good at first, but it will end up poisoning your soul. 
There's a quote that often gets attributed to Anne Lamott, great writer. It actually comes from AA, which says that, you know, holding resentment against people is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. That's what it does to our hearts. You're just hurting yourself. If you hold bitterness and resentment and, and a grudge in your heart, you're really hurting yourself. It will turn you into a small, self-focused, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-righteous person. Don't do it. The first way to live a life of peace and reconciliation with other people is you have to get out of God's place. But secondly, you have to get hold of God's view. Um, I mentioned just a moment ago that getting out of God's place does not mean excusing evil or refusing to name it for what it is. So we saw that Joseph said, am I in the place of God? The answer is no. But right after that, in verse 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. So Joseph is very clear about the fact that what they did was evil. And yet, Joseph remains free of bitterness, free of resentment, free of hatred against his brothers. How in the world can he do that? Look closely with me. He says, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. How in the world can he say something like that? That is a radically counterintuitive view of the world. What do I mean by that? You know, there are a number of views we can take of the world. There are a number of alternate viewpoints on the world. One of them is what I would call the religious view of the world. The religious view of the world says that if you live a good life, good things will happen to you. If, if you're a good person, then God will love you and accept you and take care of you and be really nice to you and never let anything bad happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. But if you're good, it's because you did something to deserve it. So for instance, there's um, kind of a silly example, but the sillier the example that shows how in the more it shows how intuitive this is in our hearts and our lives. Uh, Jenny and I were watching The Sound of Music earlier this year. We hadn't seen it in a while. And I, I remember one of the songs, I had never really paid attention to this before, but it's the song where Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer are finally professing their newfound love for one another. And, and they start singing this song, and the song says, For here you are, standing there, loving me, whether or not you should, so somewhere in my youth or childhood... I must have done something good. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. It's a silly little song, but the sillier the song, the sillier the example, the, sh the more it shows just how intuitive that is in our hearts and our lives. We think that if good things are happening in our lives, it's because we did something good. I did something to deserve this. It's the religious view. If you're a good person, good, good things will happen to you. And, you know, I want to say something. Not only is that really intuitive, it is also an incredibly insecure way to live. Because if you live up to your um, goals in life, it will make you proud and superior of other people. You'll feel like you actually have a right to judge other people. But if you fail, you're constantly looking over your shoulder, feeling like, oh, no, God is going to get me. It is an incredibly insecure way to live. It's the religious view. But secondly, there's also the secular viewpoint. The secular view of the world um, would say, it would look at evil and suffering in the world and say, not that you know, God is punishing us. It would say, well, God can't exist at all because of the presence of evil and suffering in the world. So for instance, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a very famous astrophysicist. I was watching an interview with him on CBS, and the interviewer asks him point blank in the interview, do you believe in God? And here's what Neil deGrasse Tyson said. 
He said, the more I look at the universe, the less I am convinced that there is something benevolent going on. If your concept of a creator is someone who's all-powerful and all-good, and I look at disasters that afflict earth, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, congenital birth defects, you look at this list of ways that life is made miserable on earth, and I just ask, how do you deal with that? So philosophers rose up and said, if there is a God, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. Now, I have no problems if, as we probe the origins of things, we bump up into the bearded man. If that shows up, we're good to go. There's just no evidence of it. So given what everyone describes to be the properties that would be expressed by the gods they worship, I look for that in the universe, and I don't find it. So I remain unconvinced. What is the heart of his argument? It's the presence of evil and suffering in the world. That's a pretty compelling argument. The religious view says if evil exists, God is mad. <laughs> the secular view says if evil exists, there is no God. But Joseph's view says God, evil exists, but God is good. He holds both of those two things together in a completely counterintuitive way. So on the one hand, the Bible is 100% realistic about the presence of evil in the world. On the other hand, it is 100% insistent on the goodness of God. The Bible always affirms both of these things as being 100% true. Now that brings up a lot of questions. Neil deGrasse Tyson was asking them. Where does all of this evil come from? Why would God allow all this evil to happen? What's God doing about all of this evil if God exists? Those are really good questions. Um, but I would say they're more, those are intellectual questions. In fact, I'm planning a series for us in the spring where we're going to look at all kinds of questions, all kinds of problems that people have with belief in God. So we'll look at things like science and hell and sex. Uh, we're going to look at the question of evil and suffering, and we're going to explore these intellectual questions more in depth. But this morning, rather than being more intellectual about it, I want to be really practical about it. Because what does this viewpoint actually do for your life? Think about Joseph. Joseph experienced years of pain and suffering. He was a slave. He was imprisoned. He was oppressed. He was forgotten. He was abandoned. Joseph had a horrible life. And at the end of all that's happened to him, he can look at everything that's happened and he can say it was all part of God's plan to bring good into the world. It was all part of God's purposes, not just in my life, but in this whole world. That it was not in spite of his suffering, but through his suffering, that Joseph actually became the prime minister of Egypt. And because that happened, Joseph was able to save the whole ancient world from famine. And because that happened, his family survived. And because his family survived, the nation of Israel came into existence. And because the nation of Israel came into existence, Joseph could have never known this, but because the nation of Israel came into existence, Jesus Christ came into the world. God used Joseph's sufferings to bring Jesus into the world. Now, can we just ask the question, do you think that Jesus Christ was God's afterthought? Do you think Jesus Christ was, you know, a backup plan? Like God's looking at the universe, he's looking at the world, and all kinds of things are going wrong, and God is looking at it, and he's saying, uh-oh, oops, things aren't going very well down there, what in the world am I going to do? Hmm, I know, I'll send Jesus. No, 
Jesus is not an afterthought. Jesus is not God's backup plan for the world. The book of Revelation tells us that Jesus Christ was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus was always plan A. Do you know what that means for your life? It means you can't mess up your life. And by the way, neither can anyone else. You cannot mess up your life. You think that Jesus was an afterthought? He's not. You can't mess up your life. It's easy to look at suffering and pain in our life and to think that, oh, I must have done something wrong. God is punishing me. Or to think, you know, I'm looking at this evil in my life. There must not be any God. Or if there is, he's certainly not a good God. It's so easy to take those viewpoints. You're either afraid of messing up your life and missing God's will, or you're afraid that there is no God and this universe is just a hail of bullets. And the best you can possibly hope for is to get out of the way. But this passage is showing us that you can't mess up your life and neither can anyone else. And listen, that does not excuse you from when you do mess up your life. This does not mean that we can just live however we want and God's just gonna turn a blind eye. This does not mean that God's not gonna bring discipline and accountability into our lives. As I said, we talked about that last week. God will bring discipline, discipline and accountability into your life. But the fact that we mess up does not mean that we're messing up our life. You can't mess up your life because God uses everything that happens in your life and in this world. He uses it all for his purposes. And friends, God's purposes are always good. That should give you tremendous resources for living a life of peace and security in this world. On the one hand, that frees us from being paralyzed by anxiety. Oh no, what if I miss God's will? Oh no, what if I mess, mess up my life? You can't mess up your life. That frees us also from bitterness and resentment and hatred and anger against people who hurt you. Because we look at things that happen in our lives and we say, well, that person hurt me. They messed up my life. No, they did not. They don't have that kind of power. You can't mess up your life. You can't miss God's will for your life. And other people can't ultimately hurt you. They can't ultimately get at you. None, none of that stuff can ultimately really touch you. Joseph could be reconciled to his brothers because first and foremost, he was reconciled to God and God's purposes for his life and God's purposes for the world. The only way that you can be reconciled to people in your life who hurt you is if you are first and foremost reconciled to God and his purposes for your life and for this world. If you wanna live a life of peace and reconciliation, you have to first get out of God's place, but secondly, you have to get hold of God's view. And that leads to our last point. You have to lastly, you have to give away God's love. And by the way, you can only do that if you've done the first two things we've just been talking about. So in verse 21, notice the last thing Joseph says to his brothers is, so do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You realize what's happening here? I was reflecting on it this week. You know, I was coming to the end of this series on Genesis. And I realized you go all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, right after the entrance of sin and evil into the world. You remember what happened? The first murder. And it was between two brothers. Cain murders Abel. And from that point on, the whole history of the world is filled with brothers and sister, sisters murdering brothers and sisters. That, that's the history of the world. But here at the end of Genesis, we see God healing all of that 
because we see God bringing reconciliation into the lives of brothers who had been at each other's throats. He's reuniting them. He's reconciling them. And notice, this is not just brothers refraining from doing evil to one another, but people who are actively, intentionally, and compassionately willing and working for the well-being of the other. Do you know what that is? Can you imagine what this world would look like today if we actually gave away God's love like that? I mean... Can you imagine what that would look like in your personal relationships? Can you imagine what it would look like in our city or in our country? You know, our world's got all kinds of problems, right? And, and the problems we're facing in this world are not just that, you know, people are a little persnickety about their viewpoints. People hate each other. People kill each other. People murder each other. That stuff is in the world. That stuff is in our hearts, too, if we're really being honest with ourselves. We've got serious problems in the world, but what would this world look like if we were just to, to, to start giving away God's love like that, actively, intentionally willing and working for the well-being of others? What would it look like in the political division in our country? What would that look like in the racial division in our city and in our country and in our world? It's the reversal of Genesis 4. This is, friends, by the way, this is way beyond just living an ethical life. You know, in our culture, the, the very pinnacle, the, the highest thing we value in our culture is what? Tolerance. This is way beyond mere tolerance. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 45, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know what neighbor love is? It's natural. Hard, but natural. You know what enemy love is? It's not natural. It's supernatural. Because it's not hard. It's impossible. Impossible except for the supernatural grace of God at work in your heart and in your life. Friends, the only way you or I can do this is if you have not a religious view of the world, not a secular view of the world. The only way you and I can really live like this is if we have a gospel view of the world. What does that look like? Well, look at Joseph. The first thing he did was he got out of God's place. That produced a deep humility in his life because what is the essence of sin? The essence of sin is not necessarily just doing bad things. Oh, sin includes doing bad things, but the true essence of sin is not just doing bad things. The essence of sin is putting yourself in the place of God. It's saying, I know how the universe is supposed to be run. I know what other people deserve. I know the way my life is supposed to go. Move over, God. I've got this. That's the true essence of sin. But here in Joseph's life, he's looking at his own life, and Joseph now is, is saying, you know what? I actually have a part to play in the reason my brothers turned out the way they did, in the reasons that they did the things that they did. Joseph is looking at his life and he's realizing, I baited my brothers into hatred and jealousy toward me. I baited them into murdering me. I goaded and gloated over them with my dreams. I lied about them to our father. Joseph was an arrogant, narcissistic person. He was on his way to becoming a sociopath or maybe even something worse. And yet here at the end of it all, he's looking at his own life and he's saying, I'm no better than them. How can I judge them? I'm no better than them. In fact, when I look at my life, I probably got far, I, sh I deserved far worse than what I actually got. 
I am no better. He got out of God's place, which gave him the humility that he needed to love his brothers. But secondly, he got hold of God's view. He got hold of a perspective that gave him a new boldness, a confidence, and an assurance that no matter what was happening in his life, God was using it to work out his good purposes in this world. You need both of those things if you're going to live a life of peace and reconciliation with others. You need both a deep humility that knows you're no better than anyone else and a confident assurance that no matter what happens, God is using everything that happens to you for good. You know, you put both of those things together, do you know what that is? That's grace. What's grace? Grace means that you deserve far worse than you actually get, but that God gives you far better than you actually deserve. Grace means you deserve far worse than you actually get, but it, you, God gives you far better than you actually deserve. And that's exactly what Joseph had. Where do you get that grace? Where do you get a humility like this? Where do you get a confident assurance like this? The only way that you can do what Joseph did is if you see that the ultimate Joseph, Jesus Christ, has already done all of it for you. Because Jesus Christ is God. He is in the place of God. Jesus Christ is the only being in the universe who always has been and always will be rightfully in the place of God. He's the only person that if he had asked, am I in the place of God? It would always be true to say, yes, Jesus, yes, you are in the place of God. And yet on the cross, Jesus Christ took the place that we deserve so that we could get the place that he deserves, basking in the love and the acceptance and the approval of God. But, but that's not all. Because remember what happened to Joseph Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, and Joseph would have asked the why question. He's in a pit, and he would have asked, why, God? Why are all of these bad things happening to me? Why has this evil come into my life? But don't you know that on the cross, Jesus Christ, he asked the ultimate why question? Because Jesus cried out, why? Why, why my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus could look at everything that was happening to him on the cross and know that it was not in spite of his suffering, but through the cross, through the pain, through the evil, through the suffering, through all the grief and the torment and the cosmic alienation, through all of that, that God was bringing a good and a blessedness and a reconciliation infinitely beyond anything we could ever possibly imagine. That through all all of that, God was working good in the world. Friends, the cross was the greatest evil the world has ever seen. And yet it brought about the greatest good the universe has ever known. When you see Jesus loving you like that on the cross, taking your place, that transforms you. When you see him taking your place on the cross, taking the place that you deserve, there's the humility that you need. And when you see Jesus loving you on the cross, giving you the place that he deserves, there's the confident assurance that you need. Jesus loved you enough to take your place on the cross so that all of the pain and suffering in your life, all of the evil and the grief and the torment and the malice of other people, so that all of that, so that none of that can ever really touch you, so that none of that can lay you low, all it can do is bring about God's purposes and God's goodness into your life and through your life into the world. That's what it can do. 
Jesus was loving his enemies on the cross so that we could love our enemies. Because don't you know that we, every single one of us in this room has made ourselves an enemy of God by trying to put ourselves in his place. But on the cross, Jesus was loving his enemies so that you could love your enemies because Jesus was loving you on the cross. Grace means that you deserve far worse than you actually get, but God gives you far better than you actually deserve. Do you have that grace in your life? Do you know that humility and that confident assurance? Do you have that in your heart? You can love people who hurt you. You can love people who would make themselves your enemies because on the cross, Jesus was loving you and me who've made ourselves God's enemies. You can be reconciled to people who would make themselves your enemies because on the cross, Jesus was reconciling you to God. Do you know that? Have you made it your own? If you haven't, do so today. Let's pray.